Uh, If you would, I invite you now to uh, open to Acts chapter 3. We find ourselves again in the book of Acts. And uh, as you'll remember last time, uh, we looked at just a couple verses in Acts chapter 2. Before that, we had looked at um, the end of Acts chapter 2, where Luke gives a summary of the life of this fledgling church. And now, in Acts 3, we're going to see him sort of begin to describe the spreading witness in Jerusalem in particular. If you'll remember, the book of Acts can be outlined quite simply according to chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and uh, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's kind of how Acts progresses with those three geographic regions um, and the apostles witnessing in those regions. Here in Acts 3, we're still in Jerusalem in Acts 2. Uh, Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And here, following Pentecost, we read of the second major display of Christ's power. So before I read the word. If you would, I'd uh, invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We're grateful to be called your children, to be called by your name, to be given the very name of your Son, and to know that in him we have an incredible and boundless love, your very love for him. Lord, now extended to us. Thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. Thank you for calling us to yourself and building us up as a people. Thank you for this church, this body of ascension, Lord. Thank you uh, that we have gotten to know you together. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning uh, we would listen attentively. I pray that we would have your grace in that Holy Spirit. Help us to have open ears and soft hearts to receive Your Word. Lord, You know the needs we come with. Lord, You know our remaining sin. You know our places of despair or even just discouragement. Lord, we bring these to You this morning and ask that by Your Word You would speak to us as we have need. Build us up. Make us more like Christ. Make us more pleasing to Yourself. And thank You that Your Word is powerful to do just this. So Holy Spirit, do this, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now, if you would, I invite you out of honor for the Word of God to stand. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, running through the end of the chapter. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage this morning is about the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were one of the Jews who had witnessed Jesus' healing miracles during his earthly ministry. You saw him turn water into wine and heal the sick. And perhaps you even saw him heal the man who was blind from birth. And you thought to yourself, surely this man is a prophet of God. He's speaking truth and he's doing the works of God. But then at some point, you overhear him making what sounds to you like blasphemous claims. He says these outrageous things like, I am the light of the world. And I and the Father are one. And before Abraham was... I am. He takes the name of God for himself. And so you begin to conclude what many others also conclude. This prophet and healer, however true he may have been when he started out, 
he has become a blasphemer. He claims to be equal in status to God himself, and he deserves to die. And so during the Passover feast, when you learn that he's brought to trial before Pilate, you run to the action, and you zealously join your voice with the crowd and cry out, crucify him. Well then, a few months later, you're walking about in the temple courtyard at the hour of prayer, and to your complete wonder and amazement, you see a man whom you've seen a thousand times before. And it's the man who has been lame and unable to walk from birth. Only now, you see him jumping and leaping and praising God. And you come to learn from Peter, the leader of Jesus' followers, that this man was healed by the mere name of Jesus. Maybe you were wrong then about Jesus. Who then is he and how is there such power in his name? That's what Acts 3 is all about. Peter will declare the name of Jesus and he will do so in the hope of leading the Jews to repentance. But it all begins with the healing of the lame man, the man born that way. And the account opens in verse 1. With Peter and John visiting the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. And there would have been a lot of traffic at this time, which explains why the lame man is there collecting alms. And Luke notes the particular gate this man is at, likely because it was one of the main gates that got the most traffic. But all these details, all this setup creates a little bit of suspense. You feel the encounter coming. He names Peter and John. He names the lame man. And you feel it coming. And when it does come, time slows down even more. Luke builds this tension into the narrative, particularly through the parties looking at one another. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. It's almost as if Luke wants the reader to sit on the edge of their seat. What's going to happen? That's what you feel yourself asking here, especially, right, if this were our first time reading Acts. There would be this massive question growing in our minds up to this point. Will Peter and John be able to help this man? Or will they just toss a few coins like everyone else and keep walking? Jesus certainly could have healed this man. In fact, Jesus did heal a paralytic during his earthly ministry. We read of that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all record that. But now Jesus is gone. And the question is, will his disciples be of any help? Has Jesus' power ascended with him into heaven, where now it remains locked up? Or has it also been sent down, just as Jesus promised it would be in Acts 1? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And this is precisely how the account proceeds. Peter and John don't help this man with earthly wealth or power, but with a heavenly power. I have no silver and gold, Peter says, but what I do have I give to you. 
In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, at this point in the story of Scripture, I think this is perhaps where Jesus' power is witnessed in an even more surprising way than when it was witnessed during his earthly ministry. Because it's one thing to heal someone directly when they're right there, right? There's sort of this nearness and proximity maybe to help you out. But consider what's taking place here. Jesus' power is being exercised through the mere mention of his name. And it's descending from on high with immediate effect and with complete and full effect. Jesus healed this man from heaven at the mere mention of his name. If this event does not prove that Jesus is alive and well, nothing will. I don't want to steal Peter's thunder here, though, because that's where he's going. He'll get there. Unsurprisingly, this uh, healing account ends with a whole lot of joy. This man simply cannot contain himself. Luke writes, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Also, unsurprisingly, this man's leaping draws quite a bit of attention. Anyone leaping, I think, gathers attention, right? especially if you're a Presbyterian. You know, you're going to get some looks. But when people realize who was leaping, Luke writes in verse 10, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And this brings us to Peter's speech. And verse 11 is something of another scene-setting verse. Everyone is utterly astounded. They run together in this huge portico area, which is just a covered roof area. It's got supported by huge columns. So they're there in the courtyard, and Peter seizes this opportunity, just as he did in Acts 2, with this speaking in tongues and everyone asking what's going on. Peter seizes this opportunity to preach Jesus and to unfold the deeper meaning and significance of what has just unfolded. Right? Of course, at one level, Jesus healed this man simply because he loves him, simply because he saw him from heaven and had compassion on him. But, as we'll see, the healing ran deeper than this man's feet and ankles. And it pointed to a reality far greater than the healing itself. And that reality is that Christ is Lord. How is this man walking? It's not because Peter and John perform some incantation or even because they have some massive amount of piety and they're powerful prayer warriors and God recognized their prayer. Right? He starts by saying, why do you stare at us as if our power or piety accomplished this? No, Jesus has been raised and there is power in his name because he is alive and enthroned. Peter preaches Jesus. Now, the, the first part of this sermon running through verse 16 can be summed up in this way. And this is a very imperfect summary, but be summed up this way. You killed Jesus. But God raised him from the dead. And now, clearly, there is power in his name. In verse 16, Peter will make this comment that it's his name by faith in his name that this man was made strong. Clearly, the name of Jesus is central here. And it's his name that we are to believe in if we are to be saved. And so I want to unpack the the first half of Peter's sermon through the titles that Peter gives. Who is Jesus according to these titles? 
The first thing we see Peter say about Jesus, the first title is that he is God's servant. We find that in verse 13. God glorified his servant, Jesus. And this is a very unique title. In the entirety of the New Testament, it's only used four times. And all four of them are here in Acts 3 and 4. Two of them here in Acts 3. And it's an allusion to an Old Testament prophecy about a servant who would suffer on behalf of God's people. And maybe some of you are already guessing it. Isaiah 52 and 53. And Luke actually alludes to this very passage of Isaiah four or five times at least. Peter says that God glorified his servant Jesus. Isaiah begins his prophecy about the servant this way. Behold, my servant, there's the word, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be, what's the word? Glorified. Doxadzo in the Greek version of that passage, the same language. Isaiah spoke of a servant whom God would glorify. And what happened to Jesus? Peter says God raised him from the dead. And he is the one in Peter's words whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Heaven has received him, and now he sits on a heavenly throne. He has been glorified. There's another link to Isaiah 52 and 53. Peter calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. Isaiah says of this servant, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. As an aside, that's mention of the resurrection. By his knowledge shall the, it's the same exact Greek term here as we have in Acts 3, dikaios, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And it is harder to get a clear statement of that than the gospel and what Jesus' death meant. He is the righteous one who never did wrong, yet he swapped places with us. We were convicted, we were on death row, yet he bore our iniquities and made many to be accounted righteous. So brothers and sisters, if you've got Jesus this morning, God's word assures you, you are righteous in his sight. There's one last link. Peter says that the Jews are responsible. We're all guilty of sin, but the Jews in Jerusalem were particularly and uniquely responsible for Jesus' death. Listen to all of the you language here. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. And the link is strengthened uh, with Isaiah through this delivered over language. And Peter says, Jesus, whom you delivered over... Isaiah says of the servant in the Greek, he delivered over, the servant did this now, he himself, he delivered over his soul to death. And he was reckoned among the lawless, and he himself bore the sins of many. And he was, again, delivered over on account of their sins. He delivered over himself, but he was also delivered over by the people. So now I hope it's hard not to see it. Peter's telling the Jews that this servant they crucified 
And it's this servant they now need to trust. The servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. God's servant. The suffering servant. And the one who died for the very people who crucified him. If you're having trouble that Jesus is willing to forgive you of your sins, think on this. Consider this. Right? Jesus prayed for the very people who hung him up on the cross. Father, forgive them. What do you say next? For they know not what they do. Can you think of a greater forgiveness than that? Right? We can have a hard time forgiving family and friends when they wrong us. But Jesus forgives those who spat on him and mocked him while he hung there naked. You cannot exhaust the ocean of God's forgiveness. And it's not because our sins are small. They're not. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, they're not such bad people. They don't know what they're doing. He was making the point that their sin would have been far greater had they understood and known who it was that they were crucifying. That he was indeed the Messiah, the King of Israel, even the very Son of God and God himself. Had they realized that, it would have been inexcusable. But he said, they know not what they do. Peter will say in verse 17, Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. On Good Friday, the Jews did not realize who it was that they were dealing with. But now Peter's laboring to make it plain to them. He says, you killed the author of life. And now this is the third title. We've looked at servant, the holy and righteous one. And now briefly, the author of life. And with this title, not only is the gravity of their sin laid bare, but it appears that Peter is now also beginning to make the connection to the lame man. Because who would be able to work this kind of healing other than the author of life himself? You've got to love that title and it's given to Jesus. The Apostle John opens his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the author of life, and he is the author of resurrection life as well. It is Jesus who pours out his Holy Spirit and grants newness of life as we saw in Acts 2 some time ago. And by that same power, he can grant newness of limb. As we see here in Acts 3, Jesus in John 11, what did he say to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And those words of Jesus actually bring us to where Peter goes next. And that is to the question of how we should respond to Jesus. And what we see is that it's, it's one thing to know the name of Jesus. right? It's one thing to understand the claims, to, to hear about him, and, and to kind of understand, okay, he claims to be uh, such and such. And that's good. We need to know the claims themselves, but that is not enough. It's imperative. It is of life and death importance that we progress to the, the place of true faith and repentance. Jesus said, whoever believes. And this is where Peter goes next to the faith of this 
once lame, now leaping man. In verse 16, Peter says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this is an important question then. What is faith? What is it? And for beginners, true faith is always directed at Jesus. In his name, Peter says. Our shorter catechism question 86 asks, what is faith in Christ? And here's the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, is a saving grace. It's from God. Whereby we receive, receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So faith is never abstract. It's not just hopefulness or wishful thinking, but it's faith in Jesus himself, in his name, in his power, his authority, his grace, his love unto death, everything we just spoke about when we looked at the titles that Peter ascribes to Jesus. And it's receiving and resting in that person. Specifically, as he makes a very real offer in the gospel, in the preaching of his life, death, and resurrection. If you can hear of Jesus preached and receive him and say, yes, that is for me, then you have saving faith. So let me ask brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, friends, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the servant who came to suffer in your stead that your sins might be completely forgiven and that you might have peace with God? And do you believe that He could do so only because He was the Holy One, the Righteous One, in whom there was no sin or deceit? And do you believe that He rose from the dead and now as the author of life has power to pour out his very own resurrection life for your salvation. If you believe those things, you have saving faith. And he has given you that faith. You are a child of God. And there's more good news. That faith that you have, you don't need to worry about losing it. Why? Because you didn't generate it. You did nothing to muster it up on your own, but it was a gift. Peter says the faith that is through Jesus. If your faith is in Christ, then your faith is also from Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul says of salvation and faith, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So this morning, what if you're wondering, and what if you doubt, even now, what if you're questioning whether your faith is genuine, if you don't know whether you really believe, or if you're here learning about Christ and you'd like to believe, then here's my encouragement. Do this. Ask God to strengthen your faith or to give you faith for the very first time. Simply ask it. We have this promise in Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And faith is perhaps the greatest gift we can ask for. And I think it's something we ought to ask for. Even if we've believed for decades, we ought to keep asking for more faith.
So, verse 16, then, it was by faith that the man called on the name of Jesus, and by that name, Peter says, this man was made strong and given perfect health. So now Peter, he's explained to this astounded crowd, he's offered the reasoning how this once lame man is now on his own two feet. But he doesn't stop there because Jesus isn't done. Jesus isn't just after the lame man. He's after the people in that crowd. He's after their salvation. So beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, Peter calls the Jews gathered there to repent. He calls them. He says, now it's your turn. And in a word, the central thing he's calling them to repent of is their rejection of Jesus, God's servant. Right? He's not just saying, hey, clean up your lives. Clearly, all of this is focusing on Jesus. And he says, you did something in ignorance. Now God calls you to repent. And you probably know this. To repent means to turn, to change course. Again, Peter here is just telling them to turn from their rejection of Jesus and now to receive him for who he is. He is the Christ who suffered, Peter says, just as all the prophets foretold he would. Right? Peter says this was all planned. We just considered Isaiah's prophecy. But it's not just Isaiah. It is all over the Old Testament. Nate's been preaching on Zechariah and showing us how Jesus shows up there time and time again. I had a long list from Zechariah. Then I had to cut it down. It's already going to be a long sermon. Well, we'll see. But... Uh, we haven't gotten there yet in Zechariah. Zechariah 13.7, Zechariah speaks directly of Jesus' suffering. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's what Jesus quotes on the night of his betrayal when Judas and the soldiers show up. The disciples all scatter. Well, the prophets, the prophets foresaw this, Peter says, and you're guilty of it. And so in verse 19, and this is a direct quote now, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repent, Peter says. Receive Jesus for who he is. And then what? Well, have your sins blotted out. That will be the result. And the imagery is wonderful, right? Blotted out. The Greek literally means to erase or to wipe away. And it's often used in reference to written materials. So imagine then that all of your sins were written in a book, right? And it's all the stuff you don't want people to know about, the stuff you don't even write about in your journal because what if someone finds your journal? Imagine all your sins and they're put in this book and it's going to be set before God and before all the world to see. But before it gets to him, Jesus intercepts that book and he takes it away for a while and he comes back and he sets it before God's throne and God opens the book. There's nothing written in it. It is blank. And if anything, the only thing written in it is the very deeds of Christ himself, the righteousness of Christ. That is your account now. When we repent, our sins are blotted out. They're erased never to be read again. And I think it's this wonderful reality of forgiveness, actually, that leads then, Peter says, to times of refreshing. He's spoken of in verse 20. He says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I think that this 
language simply refers to the joy of salvation that we get to experience in this life. The expression times of refreshing, it doesn't have a biblical parallel, and so we have to lean on the immediate context here in Acts to understand it. So what's the context? Well, a couple clues. One of them is Acts 2.38. There's a triad that parallels what we see here. Peter says there in Acts 2.38, in short, repent and be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then here, what does he say? He says, repent, be forgiven, and receive times of refreshing from the Lord. Also in verse 26, at the end of this sermon, Peter says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The blessing is now, and it comes when we receive the Holy Spirit. And actually, this is abrupt, but this is where I want to conclude the sermon by speaking briefly of this blessing and of these times of refreshing. Uh, I realize that I'm going to leave out a good bit of the text here, I realized that too late, that I just had too much to fit into this sermon. So my apologies. I think it was John Calvin, actually, who he would just preach, and then when he ran out of time, he would just be done with his sermon, and then they'd pick up the next time. So uh, I'm just trying to be like John Calvin. No, my apologies. But I do want to end by speaking to this question of blessing and refreshing and healing. Because I do think it's natural for us to ask and wonder here, with this passage, things like this, the lame man was healed, but what about me? And why don't we see more of this today? There's power for healing in the name of Jesus, and all it takes is faith. Then where's the healing? Where's the power? And we are not going to be able to fully explore those questions. I don't have a deep theological monologue here, but I do want to say this. Here in Peter's sermon, he says, in verse 21, he says that heaven must receive Christ until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There is a day when full and complete and final restoration will come. And we read of it in the Old Testament scriptures. We read of it actually in Isaiah 35, and it's a return from Exodus language. The people come back and there's restoration and blessing and the land is restored and the people are restored. But that day has not yet come, right? And until that day, God has determined, we see quite clearly in Scripture, that this life, in this life, his people should only receive glimpses and foretastes of that heavenly kingdom. It does break in, but it only does so in these glimpses. And this lame man's healing is one of those glimpses. Again, Isaiah 35, this is what he said, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. This is an inbreaking of that future kingdom of God. And so, yes, there is a lot of healing in the New Testament, but there is also a great absence of it as well. We need to remember that as well. Paul had poor eyesight. Timothy had stomach problems, and Paul writes, frequent ailments. Epaphroditus was sick nearly to the point of death. Right? Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it was, but he prays three times that the Lord would remove it. And the Lord says, 
No, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It seems like more often than not, weakness and suffering are God's primary tools for humbling us and shaping us into the likeness of Christ. So on this side of glory, even more than our physical healing, God is after our inner renewal. 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And it's this renewal that Peter speaks of when he says blessing and times of refreshing. It's this inner renewal, Christ at work in us. And that is a marvelous thing. Promises of the New Testament, the transformation that gets wrought in our hearts. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness, Paul says. Jesus is helping us to kill sin and to to overcome temptation, to be done with the things that hurt us so much. And he's teaching us the good way, the way of faith, hope, and love, the way of sacrifice, and the way of serving one another. Ultimately, Jesus is making us more like himself. So yes, this lame man was specially blessed to have his legs restored in this life. But no doubt, it was an even greater joy for him to have his heart restored. And Peter invites all of us this morning to know that very same reality by calling on the name of Christ. So in 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, and we'll close with these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there's healing in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you that each one of us here, if we have taken hold of your son, we have known that healing Lord, you are still at work in each one of us, and we'd ask that by the power of your Spirit, you might continue to mightily transform us and to shape us into the image of Christ, that you might cause faith to well up in our hearts, Lord, that we might look to Jesus and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, as we behold Him in spirit, we know this is from You, for You are the Lord. Lord, we pray also, God, as we look at this passage, we we think of the great need of the gift of faith to be poured out upon those who do not yet have it. And so, if there are any in this room who do not yet know Your name, Lord Jesus, who have not yet trusted in it and received You and rested in You and what You have done, Father, would you grant them faith? May this be the day of salvation. Lord, thank you that when we pray, you hear us because we have your Son. He is in us and we are in him. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.